Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Most Well Supreme Storytelling Time. My name is Stephen Scott Srebrenik, and I am your host and the author of these wonderful tales. And today, this one is about Joe Jackson. And uh, we'll get to it in just a second. I just want to let you folks know about how we get to do this cool program. And we'll be right back. So stay tuned. Thank you. And thank you for listening again, folks. This story is called, What Happened That Time I Went to See Joe Jackson? And we're going back to the beginning of everything here, folks. Uh, The reason that this whole podcast exists. So before I get into it, uh, I just wanted to say thank you, Joe Jackson, for dragging me into a life of... uh, fun, debauchery, and uh, a whole lot of other good stuff. Anyway, just after turning 14, with the parents that I had now divorced for two years, I decided it was uh, time to go see my first concert of my life without my parents. And straight away, I'll tell you, I flat out lied to my parents, and they never do this took place. May they both rest in peace now. Uh, The plan was for me to stay at my friend Jerry's house and not tell anybody that we're going to go to the amusement park, unchaperoned, and do this without issue. It was a nice try, and I'm lucky that I didn't have more trouble than what actually happened that day. My two schmuck friends, and I use that word friends in quotes, Jerry, Warren, and I somehow got dropped off by Jerry's older sister. We were going to Six Flags Great Adventure and Joe Jackson was doing a free concert there that day. We were excited as hell. And you know, it all started well. I mean, as I prepared for the show, I rolled nine joints to smoke throughout the concert. As I'd heard, that's what people did and were you know, able to do without you know, being arrested. And I was already a, a daily you know, pot smoker by then. Um, so. After traversing the park while patrons waited online to ride the runaway train and lightning loops, rolling coasters, you know, we, we went uh, to, the, to the theater, amphitheater, to get the best shot, you know, spot to see the show. And as soon as we could, we got up into the stands and found a good spot. And after a while, I know I got both hungry, thirsty, well, and thirdly, I had to pee. So, you know, neither of the guys I was with wanted to go when I needed to. So I went down to the bathroom or wherever alone. And when I went to go back to the area I thought we were sitting in, as it was a general admission outdoor arena like in most amusement parks, I could not for the life of me find my friends. And after all, it was literally the first time I had been in an unsupervised situation in a crowd this big before, so I got lost. And no, idiot that I am and schmucks that they were, We did not arrange a meeting place if we got separated. So, after a while of desperately looking for them, and you know, folks, you young people listening to this, this was uh, 1979, I think, and um, yeah, cell phones didn't even exist, so it wasn't happening. Uh, I, I didn't find my friends, and... Um, so after, after desperately looking for them, I saw the show was getting ready to start. So I gave up and thought the best bet was to find them after the show. 
So I made my way down to the floor and stood next to a taller and seemingly odd chick who was older than me and was wearing a men's uh, tweed sport jacket that had a black and white pin that had the letters P and in capital letters P-I-L. And I had no idea what P-I-L was, pill, well, which was at, you know, a, a new, uh, 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 it was Public Image Limited, and they're an amazing art anarchy rock band, but that's another whole, you know, thing. Anyway, uh, so I didn't know what pill was, but I, I knew I wanted to be near her because she seemed like she knew something that I wanted to know about. And I tried to hit her on her over the course of the show, but that was a waste of time other than to practice hitting on chicks. <laughs> Excuse me. So, eventually the show ends. And it was great, by the way, with Joe Jackson doing Sunday papers, initially going out with him, and many more. And, and I was thrilled at seeing something like that because I'd never been amongst a crowd of thousands alone. And, you know, really, even with my parents, I mean, the only thing I'd been to was a Mets game before that. Um, and everything else was much smaller. And to experience music that way, which was, to me, visceral, intense, you know, because of the intense energy of a large crowd and, and, and the awesome charisma and music of a great performer and, and how it affects us as people, it just sucked me in right away. So I walked up again to the stands after the show was over to try and find the guys I was with. And then I realized that they had left and I had no idea how to find them or worse how I was going to get home. This was 1979, and like I said, no cell phones, beepers, or any other device to stay in touch with anyone once you left your house, so. Um, anyways, I, I, I wandered around the Six Flags Park aimlessly, looking at every human being for hours in a futile attempt to recognize anyone and get home. My parents were about an hour or so away, and if they knew where I was without their permission, and that my friends and I became separated, that somehow the blame would fall on Jerry because his sister took us and didn't chaperone us that day, and my dad wouldn't let me hang out with him anymore. And that was probably, uh, I probably should have listened to him about that at that time anyway. Sorry, Dad, for dissing you and, and hanging out with schmucks like Jerry. So anyway, uh, after a couple hours of wandering, I saw that the, you know, the band Beatlemania was playing. And as a footnote, Beatlemania was a live recreation of the Beatles in all the stages of their career, performed by lookalikes who mimicked the Beatles as much as they could on Broadway, firstly. And then they toured around, uh, you know, af after their run on Broadway for many, you know, many, many years. It was a great representation for a tribute band, cover band, you know, for a couple of reasons. One being that the, the Beatles didn't perform after 1966. So much of their catalog was never done live. And two, it was the closest thing to the, seeing the Beatles that most people ever up to that point, you know, as, as you know, you know closest thing they'll ever get to seeing the Beatles up to that point. Because now we've got like groups like the Fab Foe they are the reigning kings of doing the Beatles music live, but they don't dress up or try to imitate the men themselves, only the music, and they do it with precision. Anyway, so that's the best, you know, Beatles show that people would get to see to that point, and 
And unless they do find other tribute bands that dress up like the Beatles for that experience, just go see the Fab Foe. They are fantastic and worth the money. But anyway, up until this time, tribute bands were few and far between. And playing the Beatles live was sort of like something that you, you didn't do unless you did it really well. Especially an entire show of their music, including, you know, costumes from each time period. And, you know, and, and uh, so when I saw that happening, I went to see them in another part of the park, on the other side, in another park. And after a few songs, even though the band was great and the Beatles were my favorite band at that time, I really did become too anxious and, and left the show to again try and find Jerry and Warren. And uh, I continued to search for them. And then uh, came the announcement over the loudspeaker. Uh, everybody, thank you for coming to Six Flags Great Adventure. But now it's time for all of us to go home. So all patrons must please make their way to the nearest exit or parking area. And they repeated it two more times. It was something like that, you know, the voice, the announcer's voice said. And I became distraught and waited by one of the two possible exit points. And I kept looking for Jerry and Warren. And after midnight, the actual time the park closed, which was only 15 minutes later, I stood outside the gate by a parking lot and kept asking people that seemed innocuous enough. I mean, you know, being me, now I knew, you know, who appeared creepy or not. I, I was thinking, you know, I, I did. If they were headed anywhere towards East Windsor because I'd gotten separated from my friends. And eventually, two couples, they appeared friendly enough, were walking out, and they saw I needed a ride, and they said they'd take me where I wanted to go. And uh, moments after we got in their car, I just fell asleep from the day of exhaustion that I had. And these kind folks woke me up just as we approached where I told them to go, and I got out of their car and I thanked them. And, uh, the voice of my sister in my head repeating what my mom used to say in times like these was, we should have all been dead in a ditch. Dead in a ditch. I think, you know, she meant that we took a lot of chances and are, and are lucky to still be alive. I guess it was a different world or maybe we were just street smart, but I'm saying that I'm pretty sure I'm lucky to be alive. Anyway, uh, after getting out of the car, I walked up to where I, was, I knew another friend, Greg, who was house-sitting and knocked on the door. Um, and uh, that's where I was supposed to be staying that night. That was the plan. Um, go to the show with Warren and Jerry and then tell my parents I was staying at Jerry's house, which I couldn't do, um, a second night. And uh, then lied and told them that I was staying at Joe uh, at Jerry's house when uh, uh, I was actually staying at this guy Greg's house, or the house where Greg was staying. Anyway, it's 1:30 in the morning, and long past he fell asleep. So I spent at least 10 minutes banging on the door, but he never woke up. And, and I didn't want to keep knocking on a door in a condo neighborhood because eventually someone would hear me and call the cops. You know, all the houses are right next to each other. So it was then I decided to walk 
a half mile, you know, 10 blocks to the nearest payphone in the area because we're in a, in, a, in a community with only one store and it was a half mile away. It was the 7-Eleven and I tried to call the kid. And of course, he didn't pick up the phone. And for you younger, younger listeners, you know, at that time, again, people only had landline phones. And of which there may have may not have been a phone in, around, or near the bedroom. Most folks had their phones in the kitchen area. And maybe one phone in the master bedroom if you were wealthy. Maybe another line in the basement or living room. So... I spent over an hour trying to get him to pick up the phone. And then, uh, finally, um, the time rolled around to 4.30 in the morning. And uh, he answered the door. And I, you know, walked back to the condo and just sat outside before I knocked on that door at 4.30 in the morning, flipping out that I was... You know, not sleeping yet and so stressed out and then uh, so uh, it was you know finally around 5am when uh, I was on a couch and falling asleep after explaining everything from the day and for all the crap that I dealt with like in some movie I still remember that that Joe Jackson concert was spectacular, eye-opening, and incredible to my young self. And from that moment, I was looking forward to seeing the next band I can get tickets to as fast as I could. All right. That was a pretty cool story about Joe Jackson, huh? So, uh, now as you can tell from the sound in the background, it looks like we're about to get thunderstruck. Yes. This is a story about ACDC. And uh, I'm because it's about ACDC and they have a record called this, I thought I'd call this story what they called the title of one of their albums. And this is for those about to rock. We salute you. When I was 15 and a half, I was deeply into hard rock and heavy metal as, you know, the 70s ended and, and the 80s approached. And uh, by 1981, um, ACDC was going to be appearing at Madison Square Garden, and that was an incredible event. First off... If you look at the now old nosebleed top section that's been turned into luxury suites in Madison Square Garden, and uh, you can see that the front row in the old days of the top of the section hanging, you know, was an overhang. And we sat there with our arms hanging over the rails trying to touch the huge Coca-Cola sign right beneath us on the wall on the overhang that lived in that spot for many years prior. And I was with three of my friends, and of course, we each brought with us one to three hits of purple microdot mescaline for each for the show. But it wasn't just the actual show in, in the case of seeing ACDC that was so much fun. I mean, they were great. Everything about it was fantastic. The energy, the music, the, 
the stage presence, the stage show, you know, but it was to get to see the show. We convinced our parents to take us to the Matawan train station to go on, you know, the New Jersey train, you know, to, to Madison Square Garden. And we had our little metal pipes, you know, bowls, we called it. You know, back then you, you made a pipe out of tooled metal machine parts and, it, you know, and used a shitty little metal screen from like a, a window and, or something. And, you know, and, and, and then the, the little pipe itself would have a section that you could store weed in the pipe that would get resonated by the smoke that passed over it. And then when that weed was eventually smoked, it would have a supposedly higher THC content than, than you know, than it w- when, when it was originally put in the pipe. And, you know, we had our bags of pot with rolled joints and loose weed at the ready for when we got to the show. But once on the train, <laughs> again, it was, we knew it was pretty much a free-for-all. To this day, I wonder if my parents had any idea that the smoking car of the train, you know, during those days... And this wasn't the whole train, like like seeing a New Year's Eve show, but but they had you know smoking cars, and and, and uh, you know it, it became an actual party in the smoking car when taking Compton goes to see his show in New York City. The smoking car is a now long past thing in travels. It was a whole train car dedicated just to those who wanted to gag on theirs and other cigarettes. And this one was filled with people like me, concert goers from all further south in Jersey. And they were all smoking weed on the train like it was legal. And back in 1981, it sure wasn't legal to smoke marijuana in New Jersey, you know? So, like I said, it was a free-for-all as the conductors didn't even bother to try and collect money for the tickets. So my friends and I took the reefer smoke. Uh, we took the reefer smoke-filled party train to see ACDC. And that was... One of the last times I experienced that is they eventually outlawed the smoking cars, like I said, on, on the trains. And as the 80s progressed, public weed smoking was pushed underground. But the ride that night was awesome. It was a great experience. And, and, and we felt like, you know, to ride to and from uh, were just another great part of the show, like a surprise we never expected. But we're also, also thankful for that as well. And, uh, you know, before... We even got to Madison Square Garden. We each took our, our mescaline. And I took, uh, you know, three hits for, for maximum effect because I was used to that already. And uh, we did it all at the sa- at that time so that by the, by the time the show started a little later, we'd be flying high enough and then not be so screwed up by the, you know, by the time we had to make our ways back to New Jersey. And like the magic medicine it was, and I say, you know, was, is because I haven't even heard of anyone having this particular uh, psychedelic available in over 30 plus years. Uh, what is it, 30 plus? Now Now it's, uh, I guess, close to, I guess it's over 40 years. And, and, and sure enough, um, we were up in the sky, way up in the sky, before the show began. You know, all the waves of laughing, chills, and the beginnings of a temporarily curved world took us over for the next five hours. 
And, you know, the most intense moments was the anticipation of the band hitting the stage. I mean, of course. Like experts of their craft, ACDC, even with their new singer, who was Brian Johnson, who had just come off their Back in Black tour, and this was the for those about to rock tour. So they were on fire, you know, on the record charts, and, and were trying to make each tour bigger than the last. And then the lights went down abruptly. And then the tolling of the hammering on a Liberty Bell replica started, just like you heard a moment ago in this song in the background here. And the place went wild, cheering and clapping, and, and the entire place was on its feet, of course. It was an incredible feeling at that time. And, and each subsequent time I got to see them, you know, they were, they were equally excellent. Anyway, the lights that night were overwhelming in brightness, and the combinations they were flashing were amaz- amazing and just intense. The energy in Madison Square Garden, seeing ACDC that night, was more than electrifying. And we definitely felt like we were right where we belonged, listening to and watching one of our favorite bands in a live setting, and tripping our brains out enjoying the rampant colors and wild visual textures otherwise not available to us humans, you know, in a normal reality. So, Angus Young, guitarist extraordinaire, throughout the show, you know, he exhibited his trademark spinning floor solos, ran miles across the stage, literally running through the entire show and sweating like he was an open faucet. From the beginning of the show, from being in a full schoolboy uniform to ending up just in shorts and, and, and the sneakers that he you know, came out in on. And uh, at one point, a quick show of his full moon, <laughs> so to speak. It was uh, a nonstop extravaganza of lights, sight gags, and a tremendous catalog of arena rocking songs, all leading to the finale of a 21-gun salute by seven actual cannons that were so loud they literally shook Madison Square Garden, which I, you know, I, I, I did find almost scary, as well as unexpectedly ear-crushingly loud. It was way too loud. Those were those explosions were way, way, way too loud. Nevertheless, it was incredible. And like I said, I, I've seen ACDC several more times over the years after that time in the garden. Um, I saw them in New Jersey at the Meadowlands for the Fly on the Wall tour and the Who Made Who tour. Philadelphia for the Ball Breaker tour as well. And each time was great. And the last time I saw them was an intentional, I'm not going to top this so this will likely be the last time I see these guys. And so far, it seems like it was. So in the year 2000, one of my great friends, a guy named Sam Shroud, he took me to see them on the second row in Greensboro, North Carolina. And man, they were absolutely fantastic. First off, it was for my 40th birthday. So that was a big deal. And what a way to celebrate it. Secondly, being that I loved ACDC for that many years, seeing them basically 20 years after the first time I had seen them was sort of another big deal to me. <coughs> Excuse me, just hard to do all this talking without stopping. Anyway, uh, every time I seen them perform, it was a big deal to me. Um, you know, 
you never hear from people. You never hear the words, ACDC sucked, do you? No, you never do, you know? So that's what makes it so fantastic. ACDC was fantastic that day. And uh, I say thank you, Sam. It was a great birthday present and a fantastic show. And, uh, and, and what an awesome memory. And uh, like I said, I haven't seen them since that show in 2000 for a few reasons. Most being that life somehow gets in the way while you're busy making other plans, which is something that John Lennon said or something like that. And it is true, mostly. Also, the daggum tickets to see ACDC have been so expensive. And being in the back row at this point isn't something I want to do to see them. So if I can't see them much closer and not feel uncomfortable about spending the money too, well, then I will. But mostly... It is not something I've been able to pull together now for almost 20 years. Um, I still love ACDC as one of the one of my favorite bands, though you know, ever though, and 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 uh, I sure hope to see them again before it's all over. They are considered one of the greatest bands in the world, and it is for more than a good reason. They kick ass. They just kick ass. Well, that's it, folks. Thank you so much for listening today to the Most Well Supreme Storytelling Time with me, your host, Stephen Scott Srebrenik. And uh, tune again, tune in again soon. I hope you enjoyed today's double feature. And um, I hope you have a most super swell and most excellent day. Stay supreme. Stay excellent. Stay swell. <laughs>